The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for loving us even when we were in rebellion against you. Thank you for sending your Son to pay the price for our sinful rebellion, the price to forgive us, the price to adopt us as your children, the price to make us a part of your people, a people from every tribe and language and people and nation. Thank you for bringing the gospel to us, in part through converting Paul on the road to Damascus and rescuing him repeatedly from violent mobs until he had written all of the letters and planted all of the churches that eventually led in a chain to us hearing the gospel. Change us through your word. We ask this in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus. Amen. This is Ravon. His story is told by the voice of the martyrs. Ravon has lived in India his entire life. His family has always been poor. He dropped out of school in seventh grade. His mom is a Christian. His dad was an alcoholic and then died when Ravon was 15 years old. Ravon became an alcoholic. The RSS is a Hindu nationalist organization that is dedicated to India's resurgence by forcing other religions out of India and creating a pure Hindu nation. In 2005, Ravon became a full-time official employee of RSS, specifically of the Brigade of Ram. For seven years, his job was to stop cattle shipments by beating up truck drivers, to chase out Muslims by beating them, and to eliminate Christian leaders by beating them and then filing charges with the police that they had tried to illegally convert him to Christianity. He was trained in how to do this in a way that made it look like mob violence rather than a planned event, how to inform the police so that they'd arrive at the right time, and how to get false charges to stick. That is not the end of Ravon's story. We'll return to it later. Our passage today has three parts. It begins with a riot followed by a rescue, then Paul's conversion testimony, and then the riot resumes and Paul is rescued again. Because the first and last parts are very similar, we're going to start in the middle of our text and then group the beginning and the end of our text together. The main point of our passage is that in the midst of persecution and prejudice, God is creating one people for himself from all nations. We'll begin with the persecution, which leads to the fact that creating his people is God's work, so he will overcome the persecution. And we will end with addressing the issue that arises in the riots. Because God is creating a people from all nations, prejudice is in opposition to God. But God will come overcome that also. Persecution, God's work, prejudice. It's a long text that raises many issues, and rather than trying to get to it all, as you listen, keep praying that God would prod you with one thing through today's text, one thing to ponder, maybe to discuss over lunch, and to change how we think and feel and live. We'll begin in the middle of our text, Paul's autobiography, where he discusses how he persecuted the church. Like Ravon in India, Saul of Tarsus was officially appointed to help stamp out Christianity. Look at Acts chapter 22, verses 4 and 5. Paul wrote, 
I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. But whereas Ravon was a low-caste, poor, seventh-grade dropout thug who converted to Hinduism from a nominal Christian background, Saul was a cultural and religious elite. Look at chapter 21, verses 37 through 39. We learn there that Saul's ability to speak Greek fluently was not something that the Roman leader expected. In verse 39, Paul said, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. This map shows the northeast end of the Mediterranean Sea. Find the red circle near the top of the map. The red pushpin within that red circle marks Paul's birth city, Tarsus. It is in modern-day Turkey. Now, look at the bottom of the map. The red circle near the bottom shows the location of Jerusalem, where these events take place. From Jerusalem, look up to the right and find another red circle. That circle shows the location of Damascus, the city to which Paul was traveling to persecute Christians. Damascus is the capital of modern-day Syria. Paul said that he was a citizen of Tarsus. This doesn't simply mean that it is his hometown. Instead, it means that due to his parents, Paul has citizen rights and status in that city, as opposed to being merely a a resident, much less a temporary laborer. Being a citizen of Tarsus did not make him a Roman citizen, as we can see from the Roman surprise at the end of chapter 22. But it did mark Paul as an urban, educated upper class within the extended Roman Empire. So the Romans gave him permission to talk with the crowd. Starting in Acts chapter 21, verse 40, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, He addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I make now before you. When they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. Paul switched languages from how he talked with Roman soldiers. By speaking to the Jews in their national language like a native, Paul proves that he is a Hebrew of Hebrews instead of a diaspora Jew who grew up steeped in Greek culture. Paul continued in verse 3. I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are to this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who are there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Facing an anti-Roman, anti-Greek, anti-Christian, Jewish nationalistic mob, Paul pulled out his Jewish credentials. He proved that he is one of them, and in fact a model among them, more educated and more zealous for Judaism than they are. Although he was born in Tarsus, he was raised in Jerusalem and was a disciple of Gamaliel. Acts chapter 5 verse 34 tells us that Gamaliel was a Pharisee and shows us the clout that he has with the Sanhedrin. The Jewish Talmud calls Gamaliel the prince 
and says that he was the chair of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. The Jewish Mishnah says that he was one of the greatest teachers of the law and the high point of Jewish scholarly piety. By claiming to be educated at the feet of Gamaliel, Paul is indicating that he has impeccable credentials as a Pharisee. In our circles, it would be like saying, well, after college, John Piper personally discipled me for a decade, and I was his right-hand man. That's how it might come across. Not only was Saul well-trained as a strict Pharisee, he was extremely zealous so zealous that he was the Sanhedrin's official inquisitor, sent to various cities to sniff out Jews who had gone astray into this new Jesus heresy, putting them in chains and bringing them to Jerusalem for punishment. His last inquisition trip was from Jerusalem, in the circle at the bottom, to Damascus, the middle circle, a trip of over 250 kilometers. Paul was persecuting the church, And now in this scene, a mob is persecuting Paul and thus the church. But in the midst of persecution and prejudice, God is creating one people for himself from all nations. Since the beginning, the church has been persecuted. Paul persecuted the church as an official envoy of the Sanhedrin. Today, persecution comes in many countries from a variety of forces. I begin this sermon telling how Ravan was part of a group that persecuted the church in India. Let's move from India to Pakistan next door. This is a picture of Jamila and her children, again, from the voice of the martyrs. She is Pakistani. She was a Muslim. She recently became a follower of Jesus, and when she did, her Muslim husband threatened to kill her and her children. Thankfully, Jamila's Christian contacts were able to bring her and her children to a safe house where this picture was taken. In such safe houses, new Christians are protected, relocated, and trained to set up small businesses whereby they can support themselves. Jamila is an example of persecution that comes from family members. Other persecution today is initiated by neighbors and supported by the police. Elsewhere in Pakistan, two brothers, Kaisar and Amun, have been on death row since 2014, and their last appeal was rejected three weeks ago on June 8th. According to Morningstar News, the brothers ran a small Christian charity and operated a website where they posted news about its activities. Kaiser angered some Muslims who had been his friends. His former friends then created a new website that was a copy of their blog with Kaisar and Amun's names and contact information on it. But on the fake blog, the Muslim former friends posted content that denigrated Islam, Muhammad, and the Quran, and then tipped off a neighbor who complained to police about the fake blog, which led to the brothers being arrested, convicted of blasphemy, and then sentenced to death. Other persecution today is initiated by the government itself. This is a picture of Pastor Wang Yi in China. He was a law professor. He is an influential pastor in a house church network. Chinese police arrested Pastor Wang, his wife, and more than 100 members of his church on a June 9, 2018 raid. They were charged with inciting subversion of state power. Most of the others were eventually released, but he remains in prison to this day. The church is persecuted, but in the midst of persecution and prejudice, God is creating one people for himself 
from all nations. Back to Paul in Acts chapter 22. Paul is now telling the story of how he was on an official mission from the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem to catch Christians in Damascus and bring them in chains to Jerusalem to be punished there. But God had other plans for Paul. Paul continues his autobiography in Acts chapter 22, verse 6. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. When someone persecutes the church, they are persecuting Jesus. When Christians are persecuted, Jesus knows and feels exactly what is happening. The church is the body of Christ. So when the church is persecuted, Jesus himself feels the pain, not merely in the sense of sympathy, but in the sense of the metaphor that the blows that land on his people, Jesus feels landing on his own body. Furthermore, suffering persecution because of Christ is sharing in the sufferings of Christ. With the Savior who suffered for his people, it is fitting that those who are connected with him would also suffer. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. In Philippians 3.10, Paul expresses his desire to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and to share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Persecuting Christians is persecuting Jesus, and suffering persecution because of Jesus is sharing in the sufferings of Jesus. The church is persecuted, but persecution is not the end of the story because God is the one who is creating his people. And no obstacle can stand in God's way. To see this, let's return to Paul's testimony in Acts 22, verse 9. Now, those who were with me saw the light but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. Notice Paul's response. What shall I do, Lord? Jesus spoke directly to Paul, making it clear that Jesus is Lord, doing it in such a way that Paul had no doubts at all. God did a tailor-made miracle and worked in Paul's heart to lead Paul to repentance and faith in Christ. If God had not done a miracle, Paul would have continued as an unbeliever. But with that miracle, Paul repented and believed. And notice that God did not do it for Paul's companions. He could have, but he did not. God does not play fair, as we might count fairness, giving everyone an equal chance to hear the gospel and to believe in Jesus. We see it happen in life, and we see it here in the Bible. God decided to bring Paul to repentance and faith, so he did. 
God decided not to bring Paul's companions to repentance and faith at that time, so he didn't. Salvation does not come down to God giving everyone an equal chance and then some choosing him and some not choosing him. Instead, God decisively works to bring some people to faith and does not with others. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18, So then, God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You'll say to me then, well, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? This may sound unfair. It is actually unfair. But the unfairness is not that God saves some and not others. Instead, the biggest unfairness is that God saves anyone at all and that he inflicted their punishment on Jesus, who is totally innocent and pure and holy. That is what is unfair. Paul deserved to go to hell. He led the beating, imprisonment, and murder of Christians. Fairness would have had Paul go to hell for his sins. But God did a miracle, bringing Paul to repentance and faith and paying for Paul's sins through the cross of Christ. We have all rebelled against God. We all deserve to go to hell. I deserve to go to hell. But God offers that anyone who gives up their own way in order to bank everything on Jesus, Jesus will never fail their trust. All of their sin is paid for by Jesus on the cross, and they have a new path, a new life following the Lord Jesus. If you are relying ultimately on yourself as the master of your fate, the captain of your soul, then your ship will crash into the immovable rock that is a holy God. You need to have Jesus take over the rudder of your ship, trusting him, not you, to bring you safely ashore. What will it take for Jesus to gain control of your ship? For Paul, it took a blinding light and a voice from heaven that he knew was from God. What will it take for you? Let it be the songs, prayers, and Bible passage today. In the midst of persecution and prejudice, God is creating one people for himself from all nations. Let today at Bethlehem be what God uses to bring you into his people. For Paul, we see the effects of that miracle starting in verse 11. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoke of by all who, the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. Paul is speaking to a mob that fears that following Jesus is anti-Jewish. But Jesus is the one to whom the Hebrew Bible points. He is the hope of Israel. As Jesus said to a Jewish audience in John chapter 5, verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. 
Since following Jesus is the fulfillment of Judaism, Paul demonstrates this by pulling out Ananias' Jewish credentials, just as he showed his own Jewish credentials earlier. Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived in Damascus. The miraculous restoration of Paul's sight is further evidence that this is from God. In the midst of persecution and prejudice, God is creating one people for himself from all nations, beginning with the Jewish people. Continuing in verse 14, And Ananias said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. Notice, the God of our fathers appointed you. Once again, we see that Paul's salvation was ultimately God's choice. God specifically appointed Paul to be saved through this miracle. The fact that salvation is God's choice should be a great encouragement to us for us to pray for anyone to be saved. If salvation ultimately came down to the free will choice of each person, then there are many people of whom we would say, "Ah, she's never going to believe, so why bother? Paul was on a road trip to Damascus to find and persecute Christians. Anyone who witnessed to him would have been thrown in prison. I mean, how impossible can you get? So if God can save Paul, he can save anyone. So we can pray and witness boldly. Do you know anyone impossible? Would God put it on your heart to pray an impossible prayer day after day that God would do a miracle and save that person? and give you the faith to actually try talking to them about Jesus. God appointed Paul to his role. What role has God appointed for you? Ananias finishes in verse 16. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Once Jesus has the steering wheel of someone's life because they are trusting him, not themselves, to get them to true, lasting joy and peace, the public sign that Jesus has the wheel is being baptized. Baptism does not save a person. Notice in the text that it is calling on Jesus' name that washes away the sins. But baptism is a concrete step to mark that we are with Jesus, and his death on the cross counts for us, and that we have a new life with Jesus in the driver's seat. As Paul put it in Romans chapter 6, verse 4, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. If you are trusting Jesus, agreeing that Jesus is the steering wheel of your life, but you've not yet been baptized, hear Ananias' question. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. If that might apply to you, or even if you're just wondering about it, Bethlehem has a baptism class starting in September so that you can ask questions and learn more about it. Ask any church leader or just look up on our website to sign up. In the midst of persecution and prejudice, God is creating one people for himself from all nations marked by baptism. And now, back to our text, as a member of God's people, Paul begins to suffer that same persecution, and some of that persecution is sparked by prejudice. Paul continues in verse 17. 
When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw them saying to, saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks. Why did the crowd abruptly cut off Paul and want to kill him? Look at the text. It wasn't when Paul said that the Jews would not listen to him. They had no problem with that. Some of them may have been thinking, yeah, you got that right. I'm not going to believe what you say. They continued to patiently listen right up until Paul claimed that God was sending him to preach to the Gentiles. That, in the text, is what made them suddenly turn murderous. Notice precisely what they get angry about. What angers them is the idea that God would send Paul to preach to Gentiles instead of to them. Recall what Jesus said in the synagogue at Capernaum and how the people reacted. This is Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 25. This is Jesus speaking in the synagogue. I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the, uh, to the, brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, Jesus went away. Jesus' hometown synagogue members tried to kill him when he reminded them of incidents where God sent blessings to Gentiles instead of to Jews. And in Acts 22, when Paul said that God sent him to Gentiles, they tried to kill him. God is creating one people for himself from all nations. And that not, stirs up not only persecution, but also prejudice. To see part of what's going on, let's look at, the, at what precedes the beginning of our passage. In Acts chapter 21, verse 17, Paul reached Jerusalem and then met with the leaders of the church, reporting how God was bringing Gentiles into God's people. The church leaders rejoiced, but they also expressed a concern. Many Jewish Christians had heard a false report about Paul. Look at chapter 21, verse 21. They have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. Jewish Christians had heard false accusations about Paul, that Paul told Jewish people to live like Gentiles. The Christian leaders had a solution, that Paul should undergo a Jewish purification ceremony, as well as doing a good Jewish religious deed of paying for four Jewish Christians to undergo a Jewish ceremony. By doing pious religious Jewish activities, it would demonstrate that Paul is a good Jew who follows the Jewish religious customs and helps others to do the same. Good idea, except that Paul was ambushed at the beginning of today's passage. Acts 21, starting in verse 27. 
When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Paul was in the temple, and some Jews from Israel, from Asia, probably from Ephesus, since they recognized Trophimus, saw Paul in the temple. They slandered Paul, claiming that he teaches against Judaism, and they also assume the worst of him. They saw him with a Greek in the, from Ephesus in the marketplace, and now they assume that he brought that Greek into the temple. So you brought a Greek to church. What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is that non-Jews were prohibited from being in the temple area. The first century Jewish writer Josephus described the temple, explaining that there was a wall dividing the outer courtyard of the Gentiles from the areas for the Jews, and that on that wall there were signs in Greek and in Latin saying that non-Jews were prohibited from going further in. And if they did, they would be killed. In 1871, one of the Greek warning stones was found near the Temple Mount, and in 1936, a broken piece of another stone bearing the same Greek inscription was excavated. It says, No foreigner may enter within the wall around the temple. Whoever is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Now, okay, every student at Bethlehem College and Seminary learns Greek, and there's a bunch of you out here. So, for fun, here's a Greek assignment. Uh, Look up Temple Warning Inscription on Wikipedia. It has a transcription of this inscription. Copy it down and translate it. To add extra challenge, the inscription is all capital letters with no spaces in between the words. Have fun. Okay, back to our text. The mob tried to kill Paul because they feared that Paul was, quote, teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Zero in on that last charge, since Gentiles are the issue that leads to the riot restarting in chapter 22. The charge is that Paul defiled the temple by bringing Greeks into it. Foreigners were to keep out of the temple, even if they had become proselytes to Judaism. Foreigners would defile the temple. How far this is from the words of Isaiah 56, verse 7, where God says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. God is creating one people for himself from all nations. And that stirs up not only persecution, but it also runs into prejudice. For fallen human beings, it is natural to feel uncomfortable around people who look, speak, or act differently from us. The temple of Paul's day excluded Gentiles. And sadly, the church has at times followed that example. Have you ever wondered why there are separate black churches and black denominations in America? Look up the history of the African Methodist Episcopal Church to see an example of the role that prejudice has played in creating this divide within the church. More subtle is neglect. The Fundamentals is a set of 90 essays defending biblical Christianity, such as the virgin birth and the deity of Christ and the inerrancy of Scripture, funded by a couple of rich 
Christian men who said, you know what, we need to fight liberalism, let's send out uh, these essays. They, the, the publisher sent out 250,000 sets of these essays for free to pastors and other Christian leaders in the early 1900s, an act that is widely credited with spearheading the fundamentalist movement in America. According to historian Mary Beth Sweetum Matthews, however, although the publisher intended to reach every church in America, somehow black pastors and black churches didn't make it onto the mailing list. What a missed opportunity. Prejudice, even in the form of ignoring certain sisters and brothers in Christ, is an enemy of gospel advance because God is creating one people for himself from all nations. And the Bible gives us a picture of what worship in heaven will be like in Revelation chapter 5. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. God is creating one people for himself from all nations. Persecution and prejudice are two tools that Satan uses to try to stop it. But Satan will fail. God will win. We've already read the end of the book. We know how it ends. The mob in Jerusalem tried to kill Paul due to their prejudice, but God rescued him through Roman soldiers. And Saul himself had earlier persecuted the church until God miraculously brought him to repentance and faith, and he became the Apostle Paul who wrote much of the New Testament and planted many churches among the nations. And God is still doing it today. Let's return to Ravan in India. In July 2012, after seven years at this job as a paid thug persecuting Christians and Muslims, Ravan's RSS leaders instructed his squad to beat someone, a typical assignment. But when things went wrong and the police didn't cooperate, Ravan's group of low-caste thugs was abandoned by the high-caste RSS leaders who had assigned the job to them. While fleeing the city, drunk on his motorcycle, Ravan got into a severe accident. And then, beginning with a hospital worker, God called Ravon to Christ. Now, Ravon works as a church planter, facing the same persecution that he once dished out. To read Ravon's story, see the May 2022 issue of The Voice of the Martyrs magazine. In the midst of persecution and prejudice, God is creating one people for himself from all nations. And Revelation 7 shows us the outcome. After this I looked, and behold, a great nation, multitude, that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, most of us here are Gentiles, counted as unclean and excluded from the temple of Paul's day. Thank you for making us clean through Christ, for bringing us into your people. Thank you for bringing Paul and Ravon and Jamila into your people. 
Free Kaiser and Amun and Pastor Wang Yi from prison. Free us from prejudice and from fear of persecution. Give us a desire to carry out our role in your great work. You are creating one people for yourself from all nations. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.